brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Alright, people, here to help you navigate the rough waters of the vast conspiracy from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I know those waves are choppy out there. The economic and censorship screws are tightening, the chemical and signal-based soups we sit in all day are getting near peak exposure, and the secret cabals behind the curtain have been keeping us in the dark for so long, we almost have no context for the deeper layers of what's really going on or what reality even is. But lucky for us, we've found a few bright minds for our troubled times, like today's returning guest, Cliff High. Cliff was here almost two years ago to the day, And a lot has changed since then. You might remember Cliff's claim to fame being his infamous web bot prediction reports, where through a combination of algorithms and personal analysis, he would comb through the digital landscape for changes in the language we use online to extract some residue from humanity's collective subconscious psychic abilities for what he calls a process of predictive linguistics. I've always considered the WebBot a fun tool in the arsenal of the uninitiated to maybe get a peek at things unseen, as well as just another thing to fold into our outsider's understanding. But alas, it seems that the internet censorship crackdown has thrown a major wrench in the WebBot project, and it seems that it may have even run its course. Cliff has also recently produced a series called Tales from the Cancer Ward, which, sadly, is fairly self-explanatory, but also provides a prominent public figure of the woo-woo world an opportunity to talk about the alternative protocols we hear about and test their effectiveness, and from what I've seen, they seem very effective indeed. So let's get into it. The cancer-fighting webbot wizard of the woo-woo world, Uncle Cliff, welcome back to the higher side. Hey, thanks, guy, thanks. Uh, I had to mute myself. I was just laughing so hard. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. And man, this is a real pleasure. Thanks for doing it. It seems like you've bounced back quite well from your cancer encounter, and that's a beautiful thing. But I wanted to start... Hang on a second. Let's guard our language a bit because it's not a bounce. I'm just about, um, let's see, in a month and what's today? What actually is today? Okay, so in a month and a day, I'll be a year post-surgery, and so it has been a long, slow, daunting slog back to this level. 
not a bounce, which implies that it was easy or quick. Right. And you've just, you know, that's something that people just have got to understand. <laughs> this shit is not quick. Fair, fair. Absolutely uh, important. And this is something that a lot of people are sadly going to deal with in their lives or at least within their inner circles of friends and family. And so it definitely is important to be accurate. And I've watched these Cancer Ward segments that you've done. And like I kind of just mentioned in the intro, it is intriguing to see someone who is a public figure and also clued into the alternative information, really testing the waters with these things that we hear about. And I guess I would ask you where you saw the most success. It seems like the protocol was quite lengthy, but vitamin C was a huge factor. Some of these other things we hear about, what could you tell us? Uh, it's not a single thing, and that's something else we have to get over. There's no, like, single savior myth for cancer, in my opinion. Cancer is not a disease. It's a condition that arises from a number of causes, including the electromagnetic and chemical soup, as you noted, but then also some form of initiating stress. It's a combinoric Okay, so it is, it's not any individual thing I'm doing, although they're all effective in their own level and to their own domain, so to speak. But the combination of them is just hugely successful. Insofar as I'm feeling now and the notable physical gains I've made in the past few months. And I'm, see, I'm at a very interesting point now because I've reached the plateau where I'm having fewer days attempting to recover from the drain that the cancer had taken on me over 30 years of its growth. And now I'm back into gaining good days, so to speak. It's so I'm starting to be able to bank little tiny bits of energy to carry over to the next day, which also makes it a better day, et cetera, et cetera. And this is growing to a very noticeable stage now because I've reached a turning point, but that turning point was not an individual day or anything. It was probably a course of maybe three or four months. Mm. That sort of makes sense? Yes, it does. And so you did have a surgery, which is an important thing to note because some people completely try to avoid any conventional techniques, which are surgery and chemotherapy, but you did have a surgery. I had a surgery because I was going to die that day had I not. Okay. I had, a, I had a mass in my colon that was two and a half inches by two and a half inches by one and a quarter inches thick. And so it had caused an intestinal blockage that had been draining me for months and I'd been undiagnosed for years. So I had lost 30 pounds, 35 pounds, was, you know, suffering all kinds of ill effects. And if I had not had that surgery, I would have died that day, probably an hour or two after calling the medics if we hadn't gotten it uh, that quick. Wow. So see, it was the very last stage in that sense, but it was not stage four cancer. The reason it was not, in my opinion, was that for all of the years of being undiagnosed by the allopaths, the allopathic medicine, the regular doctors and so forth, had just totally missed the fact that I had a cancer or ignored warning signs, even though I reported it to, you know, gastroenterologists, I reported classic cancer symptoms for better part of four years, and yet there was never a diagnosis that, oh, geez, maybe we should check you for cancer. In any event, though, so I go on the uh, 13th of July, Friday the 13th, my lucky day, on a 40-mile excruciatingly painful conscious ride to a local hospital in an emergency condition, having made my peace with everything, because I 
did not expect to recover at all. Went through the whole process and did recover. And then I realized how easy it would have been to die, how much easier it would have been to die because the building myself back up, overcoming the uh, constant barrage of the cancer industry, and as I say, recovering my body mass and my key energy and all of these sorts of things was very grueling those first few months. That's when there were the, was the potential for all kinds of relapses. But the reason, as I say, that I didn't go into like stage four with the cancer, that there was no penetration of the cancer into any of my lymph nodes whatsoever may have to do with one of two things or either of two things or a combination of both. One thing is that I have schizophrenic genes and people with schizophrenic genes, it's rare for them to die from cancer. It's just one of the things that your system seems to protect you from the death of cancer, although you, it, it would have killed me by having destroyed my blood vessels, basically, and obstructed a bowel. But in any event, though, another thing was that for years, because I was undiagnosed, I was trying all different kinds of alternative things and had settled on a really uh, fairly um, uh, intense vitamin regimen, as well as taking C60. And those things over the course of the last five years may have prevented that cancer from being able to go to stage four, and it simply grew and grew and grew as opposed to metastasizing. Since that was the case and it was removed, I've had to deal with the loss of all, all different kinds of systems. So I lost uh, muscle mass. I lost, as I say, 30 plus pounds. I had my testosterone drop to just totally unacceptable levels. And testosterone is a key hormone for men, and you really need it, especially to overcome and struggle back from disease and stuff. Now, I had done keto for 30 years, and I credit the key powers, the key arts, where you basically uh, develop and pack in life energy, key energy. I credit that with keeping me going through the months following the surgery, which were so it was a case of being barely there. You know, I could have dropped over dead at any moment because of having suffered through that for the last 15 years and then the last five really badly and then the last three excruciating and then the last one where it basically was consuming me and the mass doubled in the course of a year mm. is the estimation of the doctors. But I had already decided that, well, okay, you know, I came out of it and I thought, oh, crap, I'm alive. You know, this was, <laughs> this was not good. That was my, one of my first thoughts because <laughs> I, I knew that I'd, I'd really suffered a terrible uh, degradation of the body. And that's what led to the regimen I'm on now. And I realized that I had to harden my body against cancer because I have obviously developed it and I'm obviously living in a stew of cancer-causing irradiation and chemicals. And so the only sane and practical thing to do is to take those steps that would make the body far less likely of succumbing to cancer and, and also much more prone to fight it. And so I decided to plump up my cellular structure, thus the vitamin C at what a lot of people consider to be extraordinary levels, but it's, it really isn't. I take four grams a day mainly in order to be able to absorb at least 2,400 grams a day. So is it, it's not like I'm taking 10,000 or anything like that, but my intercellular mass or intercellular cement is ever so much better now and so can resist cancer trying to adhere to any given area to, you know, basically feed off the body. And then I'm doing other things in order to provide immuno 
system uh, boosts such that I'm taking a prophylactic immunotherapy approach to this. So it's a combination of orthomolecular medicine, immunotherapy in the form of this stuff called GC-MAF, mm -hmm. which is glycoprotein macrophage activating factor. And that activates killer cells in your body to go and destroy any cancer cells that they find. And then also I'm using medicinal mushrooms and other traditional Chinese herbal products, primarily as prophylactics, but also some of them for boosting the testosterone. Something that people fail to grasp is the critical nature of hormones in their system at any given time. And you basically have the following system, and this is horribly simplified, but it'll give you the idea. Your liver produces cholesterol, for instance, right? And beyond the cholesterol, it also produces hormones. Some of those hormones use cholesterol to be produced. Uh, others don't. But the hormone tree from the liver onward can branch. And it can branch into your ordinary good hormones like human growth hormone and testosterone and estrogen, etc. Or it can branch into the cortisol side. Cortisol is a stress hormone that activates and is activated by the adrenal gland and causes adrenal fatigue, but also prompts adrenal fatigue. So these are like negative feedback loops that are really vicious with the cortisol. Once you get into a cortisol loop because your body's under stress with cancer, that is to say, once the cancer is developed to the point where it's starting to interfere with your other body systems, it will continually drain you of the ability to produce regular, ordinary hormones that are your primary defense against aging and body degradation at so many different levels, including opportunistic disease attacks and these kinds of things. So I was shocked, for instance, over a course of only a couple of years to lose 60% of my testosterone level. And yet the allopathic physicians, including the seemingly knowledgeable concierge physician I was dealing with at the time, said that, well, you know, there basically isn't much we can do about it. And in my opinion, they should have, like, put this in there and said, hmm, wonder what's causing that, you know? Mm -hmm. Because I had been at regular testosterone levels, in my opinion, and I'd charted them since I was in my 40s when I had a complete blood work done. And I saw them go from over 600 down to under 300 in a radically short period of time. And this is just not good. Yes, a man can exist on testosterone levels that are lower than 300, but I had been used to having higher than median or higher than mean levels of uh, testosterone for my age. And I counted on that for basically getting shit done. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it gets you out there and drives you. So now I'm pleased to note that, you know, I've been able to restore through herbal means and not synthetic testosterone. So I'm not giving myself shots. I'm not taking testosterone replacement therapy or anything. And I'll be having another test here fairly soon when I can get into town and get the blood work done. But I've been able to restore it back up to over 500. So in a short period of time, I've been able to, and I'm talking months. You see now, it's been, let's just say, six months maximum that I've been on the a regimen that was designed to produce increased testosterone levels. And I've been able to basically double the level I had in my system, both of free testosterone and the floating bound testosterone. Hmm. Well, I mean, congratulations on the progress you have had. I mean, yes, it is a grueling process. It is very tough to make 
the lifestyle changes that are necessary to recover and to keep this stuff out of your system for the rest of your days. And as you said, it's a recovery recipe that includes a lot of things. GC math we've talked about before, C60, special um, mushrooms. Paul Stamets is really great about mushrooms. He's a really intriguing guy. And uh, I just congratulate you on that success. I also wanted to ask about the WebBot project and what's going on with that, because it has been the primary thing that you're known for for so long, but maybe for the people who haven't checked in in a while, it seems that the program has been held back or maybe even retired due to the censorship and changing landscape of the internet. Is that right? What's going on there? The latter is indeed correct. Okay, so at this point, the censorship, the avowed, open, heavy-handed, basically ham-fisted censorship has really caused me two sets of problems. Before it emerged, there was a tendency on the part of people to self-censor because so many individuals were being, you know, a shadow banned or soft-censored, so to speak, in terms of individual channels or people being kicked off of social media or put into social media jail for a while. And so a lot of people started becoming paranoid. They started self-censoring their language, even admitting to self-censoring their language within the media itself. And that obviously affects the uh, ability of the um, gathering of the data to get enough unrestricted language to be able to follow moving trends. So one part of that aspect of this pre-official censorship was that the the target was shrinking as it was moving, so to speak. And that because the self-censorship was even openly discussed among others, it rippled out a great degree and it forced lots of people into really weird, from the, my perspective, very strange linguistic cul-de-sacs or thinking or prisons, however you want to describe it. But here's, here's an example. So you've got a guy that runs a YouTube channel. Now, I didn't do much with YouTube I, in terms of I never did any text-to-speech in order to get the linguistics there, but I recognized a number of years ago I would have to move in that direction because YouTube is a major outlet for linguistics, and the spoken word is now as powerful as the written word, if not more so. And so I was going to gradually move into doing text-to-speech, but it's fraught with peril because you, you to get original untainted speech, you've got to be sure that your text-to-speech engine is getting a known level of accuracy, and then you have to factor in the inaccuracy. So if it routinely mistranslates 11% of the words, you've got to know which words it's going to mistranslate most often in order to kick them out of my kind of processing. So it becomes very tedious. Mm. And I had yet to move that way. However, on YouTube, you see people saying, well, uh, they're actually reading an article as part of their uh, news presentation, YouTube channel, for instance, and they show you the article and you can see that the article has certain words in it. And then they do not use those words because they're afraid that the YouTube algorithm will pick them up saying those words and decide that they're expressing those words positively and kick their channel off. Mm -hmm. When in fact, they were making an anti those words comments, if that makes sense, right? So they they were against the subject, but they dare not even use the language of the domain <laughs> of the subject. So it's like, it's as though we were talking about Arduinos, okay? Arduinos are these little computers that kids can learn to program with, where you can use, they're really cool, I like them, I've got a number of them and I'm messing about with them. 
You can use them to control other devices and things. But, you know, they're very desperately anti-Arduino. They don't like Arduino. They don't want to even discuss the Arduinos, but they need to discuss the subject of the fact that Arduino is now in the news. And they dare not use the word Arduino for fear, <laughs> for fear of triggering it because it's a word that's been repressed in the social media. So you see how bizarre it is from my perspective. It is as though the language is now corralled. It has to exist within certain extremely limited domains, which does not do me any good. The nature of prescient language is that your psychic nature that has to leak out one way or another will leak out in your language. But if your language has to go through a conscious filter continuously because your social presence depends on it, then those leaks are going to get filtered out mm -hmm. because frequently they were in inappropriate and extreme uses of language for the domains. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. If you're bot is analyzing thought patterns or just natural psychic ability that comes out through our language. A lot of magic stuff, from what I understand, is best when it's subconscious. So if you are constantly thinking about what you're saying, you're going to screw up your own psychic ability, which is manifesting on the internet and then being read by your web bot. So I get that this is a real problem for your protocol. And I also wanted to ask you about this, because some of the big predictions that have gotten a lot of blowback seem to be around Bitcoin and cryptos. It seems like through most of 2018, the story was that 2019 was going to be a huge year for Bitcoin and that kind of stuff. I know my pops is really paying a lot of attention to what you say because he bought Bitcoin when it was in the hundreds. And now uh, he's hoping that he can pop that champagne in his retirement. You know, he's a little bit over uh, he just turned 70. So this is going to be a crucial factor in the last decade of his life. But some of those prediction models were throwing out numbers like 13,888, numbers far above that. What is the latest when it comes to crypto markets and maybe not just the value, but even this transition of the economy from fiat to the blockchain? I mean, is this still something you're bullish about? Oh, certainly. Okay, so we're at a very interesting time because of the real work that's being done and the lack of sensationalistic, speculative verbiage in multiple media sources. So we don't have the excitement levels that we had before, but we've got far more actual progress than we had in 2017 and 18. So the situation we had, though, as we crossed into 2018 with the large run-up and then the subsequent crash, replicates what happened when Bitcoin was basically out of the gate in Mt. Gox in 2013 and crashed from 1100 down to 100 and something. I think it was like maybe 130 on some exchanges. Now we've got a very interesting situation arising. The reason that this is arising is because a lot of crypto companies are failing and this is actually turns out to be good because they're clearing out weakness out of the market and distraction out of the market. And then there we have a lot of crypto companies and coins that are doing very well. And they're doing well because they're actually achieving traction in particular markets or achieving traction with particular goals that they'd set out when they had their first forays into crypto space. We also have a situation where regulation is now starting to get moving and start to catch up with uh, the existing regulation with those things that it can in terms of dealing with 
bad actors in the markets. And so the markets are becoming, um, just through regulation, are becoming more acceptable because the level of risk is perceived to be dropping. It's no longer considered the Wild West because there's a few sheriffs now showing up in some of the towns. Hmm. And as a result of that, we're seeing a broader adoption of the concepts that were talked about just as concepts in 2013 and 14 in the banking business conferences now be rolled out into functioning systems this year and into next year. There's critical areas that we're crossing this year, though, relative to the whole crypto story. And so, for instance, paying attention to Bitcoin at this moment might give you a skewed impression of where things are at and what's happening. Better it would be to look at Litecoin, because Litecoin's coming through its halving here this year and is already feeling the effect of that. And this will become more magnified as we get close to the halving and then for the 30 or 40 days following it. And then this effect, this you could probably chart to some degree a correspondence between Bitcoin and its halving next year and the Litecoin halving this year. So an interesting perspectives on things like various different forms of distributed access objects and distributed exchanges and these kind of issues, right? So, for instance, throughout 2016 and 17, we had the story of the ICOs, initial coin offerings. And those, if you will, are analogs to a company offering its own stock for sale on a retail market, very much like a penny stock, right? Mm -hmm. Any company can sell stock directly to the public if they follow the SEC's rules for doing so. And they need not have an initial public offering involve itself with any financial structure whatsoever. Although you note that many of them do because the market is not without its peril. So now, today we have initial exchange offerings where companies that are bringing cryptos into the market for one reason or another go through and have an exchange offer these. Now, this is an entirely... At one level, it's a sort of a meaningless abstraction as to whether the company issues the coins or an exchange does. But at the human level, it provides another layer that is seemingly providing a sense of surety, some level of more certainty in terms of pricing and so on, as well as a sense of solidity. The reason being that these exchanges don't want to be doing initial exchange offerings on coins that come on out and go bluey and eat up, you know, 12 to $15 million just overnight, that kind of thing. So they're only going to, theoretically, they're going to be vetting those coins and stuff that they actually offer. Now, this, this whole concept is fraught with peril because you could have bad actors even within exchanges, and you're just assuming that the exchange has a long-term business model, which tends to favor them being more honest. And a short-term business model, which is let's do this for a couple of years, rake in $300 million and say bye-bye suckers. So, you know, if you looked at it, the same operation in either perspective yields different results. But we're at this interesting stage here because you see that we've got inter-country sovereign settlements of oil debt with cryptos. So my predictions that came out of the bots really before Bitcoin took off in 2014 have been shown to be accurate. Indeed, Bitcoin is scaled to that level and will scale even more so as we go forward. We now have countries that are 
reacting to the profit that can be made uh, again in mining and are demanding that these miners pay actual costs for mining since they're so uh, becoming so successful in their area that they can afford to pay their actual electricity cost. This is like in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and a few other countries where subsidized electricity has made a lot of people very wealthy Bitcoin and other miners. I mean, anywhere you want to look in the crypto space, it's becoming more and more uh, part of the emerging sci-fi economy, although you're not going to see a whole lot of it in the uh, public mainstream media. You'll see more in alternative media. But a curious factor of getting back to the censorship is that the death of the... I wrote a, a, a blog on my uh, website that I called The Death of Predictive Linguistics. And in there, I note the conditions and why predictive linguistics has been so impacted by the censorship. But there's a few things that really need to be understood. It's not just my system that's impacted by this. Everyone else that depends on a linguistically, in terms of, you know, that's running algos, running um, various different forms of web scraping or web spiders and getting information that way is also going to run into this. So you've got a lot of companies that do forecasting for stock market. Basically, they were doing the same thing that I was, which was trying to do sentiment, you know, human sentiment trending around linguistics. And so these guys are snockered too. Isn't going to happen because we've all been so constrained. And as certain adjectives become pejoratives based on the mainstream media, you get into this curious thing where the mainstream media's ideological possession is now basically forbidding them from talking about cryptocurrencies. And it's doing so not because of the cryptocurrencies or the financials or anything like that, but because of an ideology that says that cryptocurrencies are not something that progressives mess about in. It's something that only conservatives and the alt-right deal in. And so because it's considered to be, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, like I don't, I don't know how they consider it. I, I mean, it's, the, it, it's just mind-numbing to me that this is actually the case. But they are censoring articles about cryptocurrencies or using articles in cryptocurrencies uh, in an extremely negative fashion in the mainstream media with very few exceptions. And the reason has far less to do with the state of the financial world than it does to the state of the political world. Mm. Well, I think that's a great analysis. They're definitely kind of keeping that conversation to alternative media. But then you also have kind of this hush-hush situation where the royal family's released a crypto coin, Facebook's releasing one, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase. I mean, they're doing things in this space that they maybe aren't quite talking about publicly on the mainstream networks yet. And it definitely seems as if we're being onboarded to digital everything, economy included. And I guess my attitude is I can't stop what the big machine has planned, but if I can make some money during the transition, then so be it. But in previous talks and videos, you talk about this move to crypto and the blockchain economics as a good thing for us. But what concerns me is that even though the fiat system is completely corrupt, cash offers a lot more freedom from the watchful eye of the surveillance state. And if we go the way of the social credit system and move away from a cashless society, People who upset the apple cart like us, we maybe could just have our accounts shut off. Does this sort of stuff concern you about the future at all? It's too late. It's too late. There is no such thing as a cash economy within the 
dollar realm. Okay. Right now, I think, and you'll have to like go fact check me on the statistics, but I think there's something like, okay, the last figure I saw was $100 bills and under printed available to be used. There's less than one third of 1% of such dollars in our current system. Now we're already entirely in a digital system. So you have to understand exactly what's going on here. If you thought you were going to use cash to disappear and be able to exist in off the grid, like in some kind of a, you know, a John Wick kind <laughs> of a movie, right? You're going to be very rudely awakened because the system is now able to concentrate its observational power on cash only or cash majority operations to see who's doing what. They don't do it the same way, but it's very easy to track because it's such a small part of our total transactions and the rest of the transactions are entirely automated. There are far better ways to disappear from the grid than to try dealing with things in a cash system and there just is not that much cash. Right now, everything's digital. If the banking system goes down, 98% of all of the, the presumed wealth goes away the minute that it, it can't come back up again. So we wouldn't have a cash system. This And the gold or silver as a means of exchange just is ludicrous anymore. It just is not going to happen that there's going to be any kind of a return to such a system with our current populations. So absent a gigantic die-off in the population that reached, you know, the level of, say, it'd have to be double the Black Death in order to make a significant impact. So we'd have to have two out of every three people die on the planet in order for systems to collapse enough, but also civilization to remain large enough to require the large amounts of wealth be able to be transferred, and then we would go back to something like gold. But failing that, we won't. So the thing to do, the smart human these days, in my opinion, should become as immersed in the underpinnings of the technological system as they are able to grasp and then force themselves beyond that comfort zone and dig deeper into it. Because the more you understand about this system, the more you will realize its vulnerabilities, and those vulnerabilities also will present to you legal, legitimate opportunities, such as buying Bitcoin like your father did when it's cheap in anticipation of its emergence into a major global force, which is indeed happening. Well, I think that's well said because... It's kind of equivalent to the dot-com boom. It's like, yes, it did turn into largely a data-driven digital dystopia surveillance state. But if you educated yourself on it when it was first started, you probably would be doing all right right now. And maybe we're in another phase of that. Again, can't stop the big machine. Might as well get educated on where it's going to go to insulate yourself from it. And... You have a video that's about six months old at this point, but you talk a lot about the panic language you were seeing and the prospect of a dollar collapse in the near future. Obviously, economic collapse predictions are nothing new in the alternative media, but what is the state of this panic language now and your thoughts on how soon we could start seeing some major collapsing of the traditional systems? Well, we're sort of seeing it now. The language itself, the panic language, has now emerged into mainstream media, mainstream financial media primarily. So we're at that stage where it's manifesting, but as with all things in such a large society as ours, it's going to be a long, 
continuing process that takes out things in segments or clumps or whatever. I mean, it's not going to be like all the business dries up. It's going to be very much as though technological innovation and currency issues and liquidity issues force all different kinds of changes at a very substantial rate and will be occupied by these changes for the next 15 years as they solidified. And then in about 15 years, we will have a feeling that, oh, well, this is the way the world always should have been and always was, basically. And in fact, we won't recognize what a huge transition we went through and that we're in that period of time of the transition at this moment. So we've got businesses that are shutting down in China that are moving to open up operations here in the United States. As a result of these kind of moves, a forecast that I made way back from the data, probably 2005 or something, about retail mall space being converted to industrial operations is now happening. Mm. We've got places like Amazon even is buying old malls and converting them to Amazon warehouses. So warehousing, as I pointed out in 2005, 6, and 7, was going to be a major industry to be in once things turned, and we're at that point now. As I also pointed out, we would get to a stage where the housing, quote, industry, unquote, would be in a major stall-out period, sort of stagflation, and where markets would be crumbling and crashing all around, some more egregious and, and openly than others were there now. So depending on where you wanted to buy and your, and your resources to do the buying, you can find hugely great real estate deals these days. And we're seeing the predicted exodus from lots of different states. And way back in, I think, maybe 2000 and say, I think maybe it was five or seven, somewhere in there, there was this set of predictions about interstate financial issues where the federal government was going to have to start acting as a referee, if you will, between the states as they fought over various different kinds of assets that they were trying to seize from their citizens through the theft that we laughingly call taxation. And we're at that point now where one state claims that, no, no, we own the, the right to tax this millionaire because he lives here. And then another state says, no, 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 we own the right to tax him because his businesses are here. And so we've gotten to that level due to the impoverishment of the states as we all ran into this giant debt issue. So the collapse is here. Right at the moment, it's big chunks of government that are collapsing. Curiously, just as was pointed out in sci-fi world predictions, which I think was like October or so, of maybe December of 2016, we're at that point where, as part of all of this, the government's releasing its UFO stuff. Mm. And it's releasing the UFO stuff as a prelude to releasing technologies. They were scared shitless of releasing the technologies because they were afraid of people weaponizing them. Because it's so easy to turn the same kind of technology that makes an anti-gravity device into one hell of a weapon. Or actually, dozens of different kinds of weapons. But they're doing it now because they're basically in a bind. The evolution of the planet depends on it at one level. Evolutionary processes are hard to stop. Humanity is going forth. They know other countries are not as worried about their citizenry getting hold of some of the stuff the same way that our government is. And there's some kind of an increased pressure from the UFOs, uh, from the, let's just say, alien problem that is pushing government to act now 
And I think that the acting now is part of a plan that's been uh, in the works for a number of years, that is to say has been on the shelf, and they're rolling it out, and that they're rolling it out as a result of being prompted by some kind of interaction between government and aliens. So basically, they've got to do it now because they know some shit's coming down the road and that'll get us all whipped up if we're not somewhat prepped for it. Mm. <laughs> well said. I'm really glad you went there because that was going to be my next question was about the sci-fi world and folding in the woo a bit. As you mentioned in this sci-fi world report, one of your older reports, you call the 2020s the soaring 20s with a picture of people in a flying craft like the Jetsons. And I was going to ask if we are on the cusp of this technological rollout. You clearly just told us we are. But what are the big indicators that we should look for or the bullet points along this timeline we should be citing as evidence for people who are maybe more skeptical or who've heard this before, that disclosure's coming. I mean, this is a kind of very controlled and maybe deceptive disclosure, but what would we say to make the case that it is happening? Well, the thing is, disclosure's been happening since the first reports of flying discs around Mount Rainier in 1946, I think it was, by pilots, right? Then we had the crash in 47. We've been seeing disclosure all around us. I have my entire life, has been lived in that disclosure creeping into the technology in which I now operate and surround myself, which also is responsible for the electromagnetic radiation that probably contributes to the cancer that I had as well as everybody else's. And so we've all been immersed in it all of our lives. The bubbleheads that are out there saying, oh, oh, Obama or Trump is going to come on out and pat a little alien on the head and shake his hand and all that kind of stuff are exactly that. They're bubbleheads. They're part of the wow crowd that want to live on the edge of what they think of as a discovery or disclosure. But really all they're doing is responding to dopamine in their brain that creates this shock of the new effect, okay? They are waiting for this shock of the new, and because they're waiting for it to appear, their mind has created some kind of an image as to what disclosure is or, or should be. And they insist that everything else is fake disclosure or limited disclosure or something along these lines. And really what's going on is their minds are so limited, they can only conceive of disclosure in their framework, and it's never going to happen that way. And in fact, if they were to simply open up their eyes and stop trying to control the narrative and to thereby profit from that control, then they would see that disclosure is actually occurring around us all the time. And it's falling out of the government in all different directions as the technology is creeping on out. And that's the thing about disclosure. Basically, if, for instance, the government came out and said, hey, here's an alien, everybody look at him on TV, and, you know, we'll even, you know, an anal probe the alien here on TV and he'll scream and you'll tell, you can tell he's an alien. And then they just say, and he's here in Washington, D.C., and anybody that wanted to come and talk to him can talk to him. And if they just did that, but it had no other impact on our lives, the impact of disclosure would be, eh, who cares, right? Mm -hmm. Pokemon is more interesting than a little gray alien that sits there and basically is a, some kind of an organo robot. But what really is the impact on our lives, the reason that disclosure is seen as such a big deal, is because of the technology and the fundamentally the ability to control energy fields that is at the core of what we think of as free energy, the anti-gravitics, which is really electro-gravitics, and then all of the other electros. So there will be all different kinds of things like electro filtering, electro mining, you know, electro this, that, and the other. 
And it's all because we'll really start learning how to control electricity in ways we hadn't even considered. Bear in mind that when the Roswell crash or those crashes of space alien vessels in the summer of 1947 occurred, we were really, we were still in the process of electrifying the continent on which we live. It had not been fully accomplished at that stage. So all of our citizens didn't even have access to electricity. And the electricity that we had was the crudest form of control that you can possibly achieve and still spread this stuff around. So we were basically, in a sense, an electromagnetic sense, we were akin to cavemen gathering around fire. They had achieved fire and they could cook their food with it, but they had no real concept of, you know, how to avoid its dangers of, you know, monoxide poisoning and all of this kind of thing. So we were at that level of our dealing with electricity. Now look at us. We have the ability to control some electromagnetic fields to such a degree that we're actually able to inadvertently engineer systems that are going to kill us all, such as the 5G radiation, right? We'll give everybody cancer that exists in that stuff. And the electromagnetic radiation from 4G is, in my way of thinking, one of the primary reasons that 9 out of 10 dogs are going to die of cancer now. And we're approaching that very rapidly. Some vets are saying that we've already passed 50% of all the dogs and cats in their care dying of cancers. And, you know, they live in an electromagnetic stew like us, but something that is interesting here is that dogs and cats and horses and these other animals that are suffering so much from the electromagnetic effects of 4G radiation have something we don't have. They have a lot more chromosomes. So dogs, for instance, have uh, 39 pairs, whereas we only have 23. So it may be that the shortness of our chromosome levels has in some way provided us some level of protection to this stage. But now 5G is rolling out at submillimeter bandwidth, and this is going to be able to penetrate even down into our DNA levels. And so basically we're screwed. (laughs) You know, we're engineering our own extinction with the 5G stuff. I'm very optimistic about things, and because of the technological leaps that we're going to take here, I'm really anticipating that the forecast that 5G will be a flash in the pan that will instantly discard for better technology will actually emerge. So the data sets that had provided some of these long-term forecasts back through 2000 and let's say 2010 onward uh, up through into 2014, those very large long-term data sets then seemed to be very, very accurate. And it was within those larger data sets that we got the idea that 5G would be a real big problem. All kinds of people raising hell about it, and then it would disappear in the course of just a couple of years because it would be replaced by, wouldn't even really be truly rolled out, and would be replaced by some superior technology that would leapfrog it so far at such low cost that no point even dealing with 5G. And I think we're almost there with some of the quantum entangled particle teleportation experiments and these kinds of things going on, Mm. because then you don't need carrier waves. Okay, and so instantly, if we had this happen, say that we had a little chip that could work off of quantum entangled carbon particles, and our best guess at the moment is the carbon C60 could be broken up and each molecule could be, or each atom would instantly be entangled with the other 59 atoms, and then you could take one from those and entangle it with another 59 and into another C60, and then all of them combined would be so entangled and so on. And so there would be no need to have a carrier wave. And so you'd put one carbon atom in your phone, and one would be in everybody else's phone, and they would all be basically tuned to the same entanglement 
for lack of a better word, frequency. The pulse really is what it is. And then you wouldn't need the radio wave to carry information to you. It would be done through that entangled particle. And it would be instantly available anywhere on the planet without the need for any kind of a tower anywhere of any kind. And so we wouldn't have radio frequency for cell phones. We would just use this entanglement thing. And I think it could be swapped over to where our production would go fairly rapidly. And we might see that, you know, maybe it would happen in 2020. And so prior to 2020, a great shift takes place, and we suddenly swap over to entangled particle communications at all levels, for televisions, for Internet, for telephones, for anything you can think of. And at that point, then, the previous technology would die to the point where we would have an industry, as was forecast in those long-term data sets, of people that would be taking down the cell towers, that would be demolishing all of the old industry and putting it back to use as resources because it had been superseded. Hmm. So I'm I'm not really worried about 5G, but I don't want any any of it around me because this stuff is basically really deadly. Yes, but... It seems like your overall forecast is pretty optimistic. I've also heard you talk about 5G in the context of DNA scanning, and we've heard from many previous guests that we have hybrids among us. There is some type of, as you mentioned earlier, alien problem. And I did think it was pretty mind-blowing and creative to think about this technology as a sort of hybrid detection system. Do you think that's part of the reason for this rollout? Is that still in the cards? Okay, that's my thinking about the 5G full backscatter radiation devices that TSA runs at the airport. I don't even know if they still do it. I haven't flown in so long. Mm -hmm. But those backscatter radiation devices with 5G, in my opinion, are there to only or primarily to find deviant DNA, non-human DNA. And any other effect from them is basically ancillary other than the production of profit. Okay, so some company made a lot of money, but they're really not all that effective for finding stuff, right? And there's a lot of ways to get stuff through those scanners, even though they theoretically see everything. And so they're extremely expensive, very tedious to operate, very dangerous to operate. They have a high insurance liability for the operators because of the cancers that they cause for the people that turn the switches on and off and stand near them when the capacitors release the charge and get everything fired up and so on. So the operational costs and the industry-level liabilities would say that a company would be foolish to ever do this without A, government guarantees of no suits by employees for cancers or something along those lines, and some kind of a guaranteed profit off of them. So I'm thinking that, well, the government did do that. So the reason it did that was not to promote a scanning industry, because once the airports and TSA was covered, you don't see that they're being these scanners are being put in every grocery store or anything like that, right? And so the uh, reason that they were stuck only in airports makes sense relative to the mobility of our population and hunting for hybrids and non-human DNA. I think that that is indeed a primary reason for it. Now, you can also do that same effect. You can also get that same kind of information if you had your receivers that were mobile. And see, in the in the airport system, it's the people going through it that are mobile, and the receiver and the radiation systems are stationary. But you can achieve the same effect with mobile people and stationary emitters of the radiation and mobile receivers. You could just drive around with a receiver, for instance, 
uh, receiving plate. It would, you could even put it on a truck, on a panel truck, and probably wouldn't even know it was there, make it look like a billboard or advertising or something, and just drive around, and it would scan people on the street based on how the 5G was bouncing off of them and be able to tell you whether or not that DNA was hybrid, whether or not that was a space alien hybrid, basically. Hmm. So you could do it that way, and it actually would be very much more cost-effective. So that would be the only way that you could make the 5G work at that level for the government or for whoever's trying to track the aliens. I'm assuming that there was someone trying to track them through the airports, that it was mildly successful up to a certain point, and then the targeted individuals just stopped going through airports for their travel. Mm -hmm. And so this caused the drop-off in the number of reported instances that they were then able to track. And so it was at that point that we saw the big rollout or the big push in the background media that prepared the telcos to push for 5G. And then it stated all of these reasons. And I noticed a number of years ago, say seven or eight years ago, that there was a, in the back channel telco publications, there was a list of like seven reasons to switch over to 5G. And they presented seven prompts to profit to companies in order to do this, but only one of them is really taken. And one of them is the one that's being sold to the public. And they were, it was basically a trial balloon when they did those articles at that time, seven or eight years ago, was to see which of these reasons they would be able to sell 5G with. And the idea was that it would be this enhancement to your devices such that you could instantly get all this information about every damn thing around you just because you were continually connected at bandwidth so massively wide that it would be incredibly cheap. And so you could, you know, point your camera at a plant and have, you know, the world's botanists identify it for you in real time, basically, as well as give you any kind of information you want about it, just because they could pump it through all of the bandwidth. Now, that's true. 5G is incredible as a carrier, but it's also incredibly deadly as we've seen, uh, especially with the protests and stuff. But, you know, the first place I ever encountered the stuff was in a genealogy laboratory with fish. Hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I was doing some work for the Washington State Fisheries, and they had contacts with people up at the U of Dub and on one of these field trips up there where I was doing software. I ran across these guys that said, hey, come and look at this. And it was like a DNA microscope. And it was 5G. And it was in its only intent was to be able to tell you they were in the process of writing software to go along with this device, but was to be able to tell you whether it was hatchery raised or wild salmon stock. Wow. Interesting. So I love all this. It's a little over my head. I like what you said about the prospect of us moving from this radiation type of carrier to an entangled particle system. But I guess it depends on who's in charge and what the agenda is. Because the narrative that I'm hearing most often is that the rollout of this 5G radiation grid is to facilitate that hybrid life and to do away with biological life, that the aliens are in charge, they've compromised the governments and the tech companies, and they're creating, say, maybe digitally terraforming the planet for the propagation of their life and the decline of ours. Is that... Anything that you think is in the mix? Is there a struggle going on, or what's your take on that? There's a struggle going on. There's no question about that. It's an existential struggle, so we're struggling for our existence. 
most of the humans on the planet are unaware of this, that the struggle is taking place. I agree that they're trying to hybridize us out of existence, but at the same time, I'd have to really think very deeply about it, and I have not. But I, at this point, I'm not of the opinion that 5G is an aid to the space aliens, okay? Hmm. So here's the, here's the thing, right? As I understand the existent space alien kind of structure, we would have to look at some – oh, we could look at it in basic biological terms here, right? If, for instance, the top dog space alien was an insect – they probably don't give a rat's ass about 5G because insects in the main are impervious to electromagnetic radiation. You know, cockroaches would survive nuclear blasts as long as they're not crushed by something falling on them. Mm. So insects in the main are not sensitive to it. However, if we had the idea that the insects were behind or anybody was behind a breeding program of hybridization involving the implantation of other DNA within the human genome, then a couple of things occur. The hybrids are more vulnerable, even if they have hybrid vigor in terms of a biological term. They're still more vulnerable because their DNA is spliced. And that spliced DNA is much more subjected to potential for damage and is much more of an unknown when subjected to radiation. And so they would be unwise for anybody, any space alien running such a breeding program with human DNA human DNA being known to respond to radiation in the form of creating cancers within that body. And so you're going to make hybrids that you want to replace humans. You're going to splice in human DNA, which you cannot avoid bringing in our ability to create or our capacity to create cancers from over-radiation exposure. And anything you add to us is not going to necessarily reduce that. It's just going to compound it and make it a little bit more problematic. So if we assume that what we see around us is actually evidence, then we can make some conclusions. Then we have to say that whoever engineered us as humans way the hell back in multiple millions of years ago didn't do it one-off. There were lots of other hominids, lots of other, not homo sapiens, but other Neanderthals, you know, Zinjanthropus, dozens of different kinds of humans. So our kind, homo sapiens sapiens, is the result of natural selection among many different kinds of humans that were created. So whoever did all that creation wasn't all that good that they would know in advance which one of these is going to survive. And so nature at some level intrudes in there and cooperates or is unharmonious to your reaction, to your goal, and you know your creatures die off because they're not able to compete with the other forces within nature. So under the circumstances, it doesn't strike me as a sound thing or a logical progression of thought to assume that the 5G is being run by the aliens for their benefit because it certainly wouldn't do their hybrids any good and because it's very definitely not doing us humans any good. And we can assume that their hybrid, maybe they would try to kill off the humans with the 5G radiation and hope that some of their hybrids survive the process. But that's, that's not a very good, effective, conquering kind of a strategy. But on the other hand, we can say in a very short way, and it all makes sense, military discovers a hybrid infestation. Military ponders, hmm, what to do? Military says, oh, look, we can see hybrids using this, this radiation. Would military use that to try and see hybrids, even at some cost to the civilian population? Sure, they'd do that. Mm -hmm. They would say, oh, okay, so we know that 5G is going to cause 
cancer rates to escalate and an additional 12% of the population will die off over the first 10 years. That's acceptable. We can take those losses. Blah, 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 blah. You know, I know the military mindset because the goal is what's important, not the individual under those circumstances. And to a certain extent, I would have to agree with them. If the goal is for this human form to avoid extinction, I would say that we could afford to take some pretty substantial casualties in order to keep the population and the civilization alive and functioning against space alien invasion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these kinds of conversations require a lot of nuance and details because I've looked at some comments on previous talks you've done about 5G and maybe it wasn't emphasized how deadly it is and instead people focus on this idea that it's somehow for the benefit of humanity and they latch onto that and they just get real angry. But maybe there is something here that, yes, it is deadly, but the military doesn't care about massive casualty loss if they achieve their goal. And if there is a hybrid infestation and that is the goal to weed it out, yeah, I'm with you. They'll accept a lot of death to get that done, but I'm just not so sure. I, I have no idea. I have no context, really. I'm on the outside here. But I've heard a lot of speculation that there is a real cozy relationship between the U.S. government and these beings, and they've exchanged technology for abduction. Is that not the case? Right. Okay. And see, that may very well be the case. However, we have to understand how, how limiting language is on our own mind, all right? Mm -hmm. and, and you're a very smart, educated fellow that understands language and nuance, and yet you fall into the same kind of trap that all, <laughs> that all kinds of us do, that all sorts of people do, and that trap is to identify the thing with the language. So I always, always in my life, I always maintain the thought that Lao Tzu has, which is the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. It's just a word. And so in this case, you say government. Well, okay. So I can think to myself, I've been involved with government. I've worked with government agencies. I was born into the government in the sense of being a military brat and being involved in that structure for the first 17 years of my life. And so I have a concept of what government is, and it is not monolithic. So I would think, sure, maybe somebody did sign some kind of a weird agreement with the space aliens. But does that affect my local state patrol? Mm -hmm. Well, probably not. I don't think my local state patrol is involved with space aliens. What about, you know, the Washington Department of Wildlife and Fisheries? Mm, probably not. Probably not many of those guys involved. And so you could just do this and you understand. You can individuate the whole thing. And so you understand that, yes, there are humans that are undoubtedly involved as collaborators, willingly or not, because we don't know what kind of mind control our enemies can exert over us, all right? And so we have to, I'm assuming, and giving the, as um, somebody who studied the art of confrontation and contention, I'm assuming that the guys that I'm calling my enemies are not necessarily willing collaborators. And they might be quite happy to kill the people they're collaborating with now, those beings, given a free mind. So I'm just going to watch out for them, but not necessarily assume that I need to be you know, out thrashing other humans, that kind of thing, right? But under the circumstances here, government, I think, is a word that, it's like a four-letter word that I want to avoid using because it doesn't describe the nature of the complex level of regulatory authorities and those force agencies, that is to say, those groups of people that are tasked with and can use 
deadly force, be it military or law enforcement or whoever. I don't think that there is any kind of a monolithic structure. And so I'm quite certain that, and I also, even if that were the case, that the government as a whole had coerced all of its hundreds of thousands and millions of employees to supporting the space alien agenda through the structure of the hierarchy, I'm quite certain there are individuals within that hierarchy whose own personal agendas are at odds with those of their managers and the overall structure, and so they would be agents for humanity within that structure, even if it existed. And I think it's much more fractured. I think it's much more chaotic and uh, chaos rules, and we only think to impose order with our minds. And so we've got to be careful of what kind of order we impose on it, because it can be extremely misleading. Mm -hmm. No, that's absolutely legit. And <laughs> conspiracy folks can be attractive to simple, singular narratives, and language can be a clunky thing, and I am but a simple stoner host. But I agree with you. Yeah, you can't discount the factors of complexity that are involved with this number of people and non-people perhaps. And as we're starting to pull back into the station here, I just want to ask you in a more open-ended sense, because we have talked about so many things and you are full of so much information and things are moving so quickly. Is there anything you're paying attention to now that I don't even know to ask you about? What's the latest on your mind? Well, okay. So at this point in my particular journey, what I'm doing is I'm sort of taking myself back to school and I'm delving even deeper into interacting with computing devices from laptops and phones and networks and all of these kinds of things. And I'm uh, upgrading all of my skills relative to changes that have occurred while I was doing all the WebBot stuff and I could only work on my stuff and never be involved with anything else. And so in a broader sense, it's a time of retiring for me here, okay, in terms of, but not retiring from non-production, but rather upgrade all of my skills for new projects. Now, in the meantime, I'm doing some exploration of stuff, okay? There's some been some really interesting information that's come on out, but most people are not thinking of it, in my opinion, quite correctly, because they're missing some of the obvious things. So in uh, let's just really summarize this really cool book. So there's this guy, Graham Hancock, and he wrote this book called America Before. And his contention is that America was the seat of our current civilization, not the, quote, old world of Europe and Asia and the Middle East, that America was the seat of the civilization that now emerged around the, the planet after a giant catastrophe some 13,000 years ago, and that that catastrophe struck America and destroyed all of the civilization that was really effective in the Americas, both north and south. It was such a gigantic catastrophe, as well as impacting most of the planet. But most of its physical effects were here. That's why we find the remnants of the ancient civilizations, the old megaliths and stuff, in areas further away from where this disaster hit. The disaster appears to have hit the Laurentian Ice Sheet, which is over the Gulf of Lawrence, the Great Lakes, the Laurentian River water basin and so forth, that part of North America, you know, vaguely the northeast of the United States up into the eastern part of Canada. And so uh, we can see that the megalithic structures in the far South America on the other side of the curve of the equator were mostly spared. But any megalithic structures within the North American continent were really devastated. If they existed at all, they existed as just really hardly visible kind of ruins. 
Now, this brings up some interesting thoughts, because we now know from road work in California that humans were here in, in North America 130,000 years ago, gnawing on mastodon bones and coexisting with giant megafauna like big North American lions and these kind of things. So this also brings up other thoughts that, well, 130,000 years ago, we're gnawing on, on mammoth bones, but maybe 100,000 years ago, after 30,000 years of development, our presumed level of development, mostly from our inception as a species now. So basically, our mainstream media says our history is about 30,000 years old as, as hominids, as humans. And so look what we've achieved in 30,000 years. Well, if that were the case, if there were hominids back in America 130,000 years ago, then they had an advanced civilization 100,000 years ago, just having evolved over those 30,000 years. If that was the case, it was destroyed when this catastrophe took place. Except there's a couple of areas where perhaps it didn't get destroyed. And I happen to live in one of them at the moment, which is a particular on the ocean side of the Olympic mountain range. And it was on the ocean side of the Sierra Nevada mountain range in California that they found the evidence of humans being here 130,000 years ago. So if that's the case, you can presume that there will be a few areas, the, the southwest of the United States, on the other side of the devastation of the Grand Canyon, into Mexico, and along the West Coast Strip, where we might, if we look hard enough and dig deep enough, we might actually be able to find remnants of this ancient technological civilization that was wiped out 13,000 years ago. And so under the circumstances, that's something that's going to be a hobby, an avocation of mine, paddling up the various streams and rivers here, looking for various different landforms and things that could indicate that indeed this was the case, that you know, if I were to dig over there, for instance, that I might find something. Just like the people with the Bosnian pyramid, you know, they live on the mountain and farm on it. And then one day somebody gets far enough away and says, hey, that, that thing looks like a pyramid. I wonder what will happen if I dig in it, you know. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, there you go. Bob's your uncle. You've got a pyramid under your farm. And so maybe that's the condition of the situation around here. It's just something I'm going to do to keep myself going while I'm upgrading all my skills. <laughs> yes. Well, hey, I'm glad I asked. That's definitely <laughs> awesome. <laughs> It's a good book. I'll let you go, though, Guy. I know that, that sure, we've run sure. long. Yes, I was going to say, I definitely had a great time. Fascinating as ever. Uh, I appreciate your analysis of this weird world we're in. Halfpasthuman.com is the website. Anything else we should share promotion-wise? No, I'm not, not trying to sell anything or make any money or anything. When I've got something new, I'll let people know about it. So something will come out of all of this work with uh, computers. I'm just not sure what at the moment. Right on. A true champion of the people. Well, thanks again. <laughs> yeah. And I'm glad you're healthy and everything. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thank you very much. I believe in miracles, you sexy thing, you. Uncle Cliff in the house. Definitely good to have him back. One funny thing is that we actually recorded this about 24 hours before the big Bitcoin surge this past week where it went clear past 10,000, up to 13,000, and then back down to 10 again. But still, right on the heels of Cliff saying, just wait a minute, something's going to happen, it actually did. Which, I've said before, I bought Bitcoin when I was still at GameStop, and it was roughly $800 to 1,000 a coin, and I had to justify to pretty much everyone why I would take a $1,100 paycheck that I got for two weeks of awful work, 
and buy an $800 digital coin that most people hadn't heard of at the time. So I got to thank guys like Jeff Berwick and some of those early THC guests we had that brought it up. And I feel validated pretty much no matter how it goes, but I'm just going to hold on to this stuff and see how far we can take it. It's money I spent six years ago. I don't miss it. I don't need it. I'm on a new thing now. But I would like to see my pops get his Lambo before the end of the story. My overall position on Bitcoin is that it's ultimately a worse economic position on the roadmap to social crediting and complete control. Guess so was the internet, but that worked out okay for me. Things are not just one thing. But I thought it was good at first because the only people talking about it were those libertarian types fixated on getting out from under the thumb of the Federal Reserve. But when you sit with it, you realize we're just being onboarded to another digital system. And back then, I saw it as a rare opportunity to possibly get to six figures, seven figures. I was broke, living on a couch. I needed a long shot because I was in a long shot situation. I felt desperate back then that my job was never going to do it for me. So I had to have a few long shot balls in the air, looking for that Hail Mary to get to a decent life outside the rat race. And now I care a lot less about that particular long shot because I found success with a different one. I just didn't know at the time that it could possibly be a podcast. So Bitcoin was just another ball in the air for me, another seed that I could hope would grow without hurting anybody too. I'm not investing in weapons manufacturers, I'm just holding digital coins and the cabal is going to do what the cabal does with or without me. It's like if you had bought Disney.com or Walmart.com when you first heard of the internet. We're just trying to bob and weave and not get crushed. And I do agree with Cliff's point that most of the current fiat system is digital anyway. But even if it's just 1% cash, I promise you that if I put enough energy into it, if you put enough energy into it, we could withdraw enough cash to live fairly incognito. You could buy all your cigarettes and alcohol with cash and completely hide it from a spouse, even if they are the one who manages the bills and stuff. Yes, there's not a ton of cash out there, but there's enough for individuals who want to move unseen to do so. And that does go away with digital ledgers and all incoming and outgoing funds being recorded there. Yeah, the addresses may be anonymous, but if they're known, then all transactions are recorded and there's just no blind spots that cash would create on a typical bank account. But this show is about a lot more than Bitcoin. We definitely heard some takes and angles that are different from the conventional conspiratorial position. Several times today I had responses along the lines of, huh, well, that's an interesting perspective. And that's because a lot of Cliff's takes are fresh and different. The 5G grid, a detection system for non-human DNA? I mean, whoa. But think about that. So they find the hybrids. Then what are they going to do? Get all Nazi Germany about it? I don't know. But even within this conspiracy culture, I don't like to see monotonous, monolithic thinking about these different topics. I prefer something that I hadn't considered before. And I think Cliff gives us that. 
And Cliff never said 5G wasn't deadly, only that there might be an end goal beyond just depopulation and making us all sick. That might be a side effect. But we gotta get these hybrids, people. And maybe the hybrid program is very ancient. Duncan Lunan definitely thought so. If you remember his take on the Green Children of Wolf Pit story, he thought they came from the stars and that the elite in the area were expecting them. And it was quite far out stuff. To Cliff's point, maybe Genghis Khan was just wiping out alien hybrids that were penetrating our population. But even that's a very thorny thing to be suggesting, that the dead in the wake of Genghis Khan are acceptable because they had some other genetics? Yikes, I mean, did you see District 9? Who knows, but on several things, we heard some counter, counterculture opinions today, some things that go against the conspiracy narratives out there, especially in the Plus Show. And I have no real dog in any fight. I just like to pick the brains of unconventional people that I find to be onto something, let's say, in one way or another. And I know some of the things Cliff said are going to piss people off, and I'll have a few who's Cliff working for comments, primarily on YouTube. But to have a different opinion is not to be somehow an agent of the system. I kind of hate that sort of simple thinking, but I really enjoyed it. Cliff is a very interesting guy, and I am interested to see how this one sits with the audience. I did have a few other things I wanted to get to with Cliff, but unfortunately, I chose the wrong words a few times, which sent us off in different directions. Definitely my bad. I do wish we could have talked about the sun a little bit more. That grand solar minimum sure seems like it's going to be a pretty big deal. There are a few growing theories out there that every couple thousand years the sun just sheds its outer layer, people die off in mass, and the elite go underground and then come back out to the surface to restart everything, rewrite history, and hide all the knowledge of the last round of history in the Vatican basement. And I'm starting to think that way more and more. But who am I anyway? So good times with Uncle Cliff. Gotta appreciate his time. Glad he's healthy. If you liked the first free hour that I put out for you, definitely consider signing up to be a Plus member and hear the second hour of this and every show. It's how we get by without any stupid sponsorships or interrupting ad breaks. It's just you and me and the guest makes three, baby. But I liked this second hour with Cliff. In it, we got into how Cliff expects to see the stages of the new energy rollout occur, implications for opening up the quantum realm to the masses, why reptilians are overblown, grand solar minimum effects and concerns, also where Cliff gets his information when it comes to alien hierarchies and hybridization programs, and we revisited the Antarctica topic and looked for a couple of updates, a little Antarctica news since the last time we talked. A Rolodex of interesting material from a really interesting researcher, and with that, I'm getting out of here. Your move, alien hybrid invaders, cryptocurrency cabals, and captains of the SS censorship, your fucking move. I won't take it, no I refuse, if it's alright, I'll keep my 
Get up. 